Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Looking at the uh, posts for this week, I realised I didn't write any of them. Um, I'm increasingly becoming a curator of From Poverty to Power rather than an author. Um, and that's partly because so many people um, pitch up really brilliant ideas that it's just uh, impossible to say no. So I've just got lots of people offering blogs and quite often I say yes to the good ones. So that just doesn't leave me much space to write anything myself. But it, no one seems to care and I have a good time. So I guess I'll just carry on as a curator. Makes me feel like some sort of dusty museum piece, but uh, that's probably pretty accurate. Anyway, started off with um, links I liked. A uh, piece of good news and a piece of confusing news. So the first piece of good news is um, the World Health Organization, the WHO, endorsing the use of the world's first malaria vaccine in Africa. And this, um, in combination, it's a, it's a drug called RTS, S, very, very catchy, uh, developed by GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and uh, it finds, in combination with other drugs, a 70% reduction in hospitalizational death, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but even better news that there's even more effective drugs which are going through the approval pipeline. So we're finally getting to a vaccine for malaria, which is fantastic news. Um, and I suppose the other fantastic news is that people don't get malaria in Europe. So the vaccines might actually get to the places that need it, unlike the COVID vaccines. The second point, point um, is a piece of research. The, the standard narrative on climate change is the North caused it and the South suffered it, and therefore the North should make all the um, uh, steps to, you know, yeah. to to mitigate, to reduce their emissions and so on, which I think has yeah, a lot going for it. But someone's actually done the numbers um, and found yeah, and, and added up the historical climate emissions. And what you get is a more complex picture. So the US is the baddie, massively the biggest overall emitter. But next come Russia, Brazil, Indonesia, and India is sixth. Now, in the case of Brazil and Indonesia, it's more, even more complicated than that in that both of them, a lot of their climate change emissions have come from deforestation, a large part of which is for the export trade. So it's the soybeans and palm oil and so on that we're consuming in the north. But it just shows that that old idea of north, dirty, south, clean is, 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 uh, needs to be rethought a bit, just as you know, when the climate change negotiations started, China was seen purely as you know, um, a developing country with nothing to do. Now it's far bigger, the far, far and away the biggest emitter. And so it has to make steps at Glasgow next month. Um, so the narrative is evolving as the world evolves, and that's just as it should be. So the second post um, was Women, Voice and Power, Oxfam's new paper on transformative feminist leadership and a minor beef from me on adjectives. So this is a new paper from Oxfam and I loved it. It's kind of a, a classic of the genre in the, in the sense that it's got all the things which make, you know, make me love good NGO papers. So really good literature reviews, case studies, quotes, links and an amazing killer fact, which I'll come to in a minute. So the literature reviews are things like a review of progress in over 120 countries over the 40 years to 2015 demonstrates that feminist movements contribute directly to women's economic empowerment. It found that feminist mobilization is associated with more expansive economic rights, better support for both paid and unpaid domestic work, and better protection from sexual harassment. Then another, so, so it goes through basically an annotated um, uh, review of a bunch of the literature on uh, um, feminist leadership, which just 
brings a lot of brilliant scholarly work to everyone's attention and is an incredibly useful service. Women's leadership in community forest management uh, bodies yields positive outcomes for both forest sustainability and gender equality. Um, in Indonesia, Peru and Tanzania, gender quotas make interventions more effective and lead to more equal sharing of benefits. So just lots and lots of evidence that leadership and participation, uh, especially feminist leadership, have real results. Um, final one, I'll put analysis of 181 peace agreements. What poor person did a, read through 181 peace agreements? Hats off to them. Signed between 1989 and 2011, found that processes that included women as witnesses, signatories, mediators and or negotiators demonstrated a 20% increase in the probability of an agreement lasting at least two years. And this increases over time with a 35% increase in the probability of a peace agreement lasting 15 years. So a really important finding there on the design of the negotiations to bring, around peace, to bring about peace agreements and making sure women are properly involved. So that's the literature reviews bit. How's this for a quote? This is from an activist in Guatemala. We need political education. Otherwise, once we manage to have dialogue and they start talking to us about things like municipal budgets, it's like jumping out of a plane with no parachute. If they're talking about infrastructure, I have to know about infrastructure. If they're talking about territorial rights, I have to know about territorial rights. So that's like an activist talking about how it really feels that when you win, you have to be able to make the most of your victory. And now the killer fact, which I just thought was amazing. The global feminist movement, the global feminist movement, has the same total budget as one F-35 fighter plane, about $110 million. Wow. So, that, yeah, I love killer facts because they, they demonstrate a fundamental injustice by juxtaposing two incongruous things. That is a really good one. The idea that all the women's activism around the world that is funded, obviously there's lots of activism that's not funded, but all the activism that is funded comes to one plane, which can just be shot down tomorrow. Quite extraordinary. Um, and the irksome bit, so I did have this beef about adjectives and you know, this paper, for all its good, great qualities, has so many adjectives. And in particular, there's a lot of what I call sprinkling going on. So NGOs are pretty bad at this. I mean, they're not the only ones. Uh, academics do it. Uh, governments do it. You sprinkle adjectives over documents to make yourself look good. Um, a few years ago, it was strategic. Everything had to be strategic. And the, the two in this paper, which are, I see absolutely everywhere in NGO literature now, is transformational or transformative and intersectional. Now, the weird thing is, neither of those words is ever defined or discussed directly in the paper. And I think it's much better to have a separate paragraph or section on what is transformational, what is not, what is intersectional, what is not, and what does it add to the policies and the ideas. That's great. But just to sort of strew it all over the place makes it much harder to read and drives away people who are not of our tribe. So I think you get very cumbersome and impenetrable sentences by doing this sprinkling thing. So just, you know, I always revert back to George Orwell who wrote uh, Six Rules for Writing Well. He said, never use a long word where a short one will do. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Now, none of us follow those rules, including Orwell, but it's a really good thing to have in mind when you're in danger of sprinkling words like strategic, transformational or intersectional without a great thought about where you do it. 
Now, third third post of the week was uh, from Abigail Taylor. Um, and she wrote about how to design research to make sure that humanitarian innovation gets scaled up. So her thesis is proving that a new idea or approach works is sadly not enough to ensure it is widely picked up. Innovators must follow up research activities by getting the right evidence to the right people in the right way at the right time. Yes, 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 yes. Write that above your desk, um, anybody who's interested in research for impact. The right evidence to the right people in the right way at the right time. Fantastic summary of long and you know, turgid lectures I give on policy, uh, on research for impact. Thank you, Abby. Um, and she gives an example, uh, Make Music Matter, which is an NGO which has an innovative Healing in Harmony program. So let me tell you a bit about Healing in Harmony. It's an innovative form of music therapy for survivors of gender-based violence and other trauma in conflict and post-conflict zones. It particularly addresses PTSD, post-traumatic um, post stress disorder, beg your pardon, um, along with anxiety and depression in survivors. The methodology enables survivors to focus on the creative process of writing, recording and releasing songs and albums about their emotions and experiences, working with trained psychologists and professional music producers, raising awareness, reducing stigma and becoming advocates for change. Now, yeah, they did some. The, the, so the team needed assurance that its approach worked and did no harm. It also felt undertaking rigorous academic research was vital, in part because healing and harmony is an innovation. And as the founder and CEO Darcy Atterman said, when you have a new in innovation, it's really easy for it to be dismissed. So how do you make sure that um, a, a, an innovation like healing and harmony is not dismissed? Well, first. They got some peer-reviewed empirical research behind it, published in the Cambridge University Press Journal, Global Mental Health. And that showed the numbers. Okay, So it was in a reputable journal and it had the numbers. It showed the efficacy of the model. Participating women showed a 54% reduction in PTSD, 67% reduction in anxiety, 53% in, in depression. Results that were sustained at least six months beyond the programme despite continued conflict and instability in the study region, which was in South Kivu in the DRC. So great, you've got evidence proving that healing and harmony works. But then what happened next is the important bit. So the team used this evidence to engage with key stakeholders, and that's what leads to innovation. First of all, prioritizing evidence users. Building partnerships with humanitarian agencies is key to their scaling strategy. Uh, so you build the relationships with the agencies and then they'll talk to you about your research and then they'll start to take the evidence seriously. But it's all about the relationships. Using evidence to enable adoption. So the Make Music Matter generates a range of types of evidence and communicates them to develop active partnerships. So yes, you have the peer-reviewed published evidence, but you also have the headline statistics like that killer fact I talked about earlier on feminism versus the fighter plane. Standard operating procedure manuals. Now that sounds really boring, right? But if you show how to just turn your idea into a project, a harassed project officer with no time to think about the big picture and all the rest of it will be able to pick it up and do it and run with it. So turning things into standard operating procedures is really useful. Finding champions. Yeah, not always thinking about the message, but thinking about the messenger. Who is going to actually get decision makers to sit up and listen if they talk about 
your project or your piece of research. And then storytelling, human, in, human interest stories, things that bring it alive. And her, uh, the, Abby's in conclusion was, simply having evidence of impact is not enough. Unless innovators invest time and thoughts into how they communicate the, uh, that evidence, even the best innovations will fail to reach their potential. Absolutely right. Thank you very much. Final post of the week. Hold on, short slurp. It's only water. Guest post by Melanie Kramers, uh, an Oxfam colleague who is the, she's another strategic advisor. We compete, we're both strategic advisors. She's strategic advisor to the CEO, so she actually gets listened to, um, Danny Sriskandaraja. And she wanted to write something about her eco-anxiety. So let me uh, read it out because I think it was really nicely written. I don't know about you, but my eco-anxiety has been soaring to record highs with each report of our impending doom in the run-up to the Glasgow COP26 climate summit. But I found some glimmers of hope in a recent Oxfam convened discussion that squarely focused on solutions. First off, we can make our societies and economies much better able to deal with the impacts of climate change. Just ask Bangladesh. It regularly tops global rankings of countries most vulnerable to climate impacts, from devastating cyclones and floods to blistering droughts and heat, and heat waves. Yet, as Professor Salim al Haq argued on the, on the webinar, this has forced the country to develop its capacity to make its people more resilient, to manage the risks and to thrive despite them, and perhaps even give it early mover advantage. In his words, Bangladesh's story is no longer just as victim and vulnerability, although we are vulnerable and victims of climate change. But we are overcoming that and we're well on the way to dealing with it. And now, in the current situation, the rest of the world is going to have to deal with it too, including the rich countries. I would argue they're not as well prepared as Bangladesh is and they may well learn some lessons from Bangladesh. Second, there are reasons to be, if not cheerful, then perhaps cautiously hopeful. Fiona Harvey, a long-time environment correspondent of The Guardian and a COP veteran, reminded us that the 1.5 degrees goal is a huge step forward in itself. When the Paris Agreement was signed six years ago, it was based on two degrees. As we now know, thanks to the IPCC, while half a degree doesn't sound that much, it's massive in climate terms. She said, You see great increases in extreme weather, in heat waves, in droughts, in floods, in fiercer storms, between 1.5 and 2 degrees. If we can get to an agreement in Glasgow that sets a pathway to staying within 1.5 degrees, then that will represent huge progress on the Paris Agreement. It won't be perfect. But hopefully we can give people assurances that finally, after not doing very well on climate change for many years, we're putting ourselves as a world on the right path. Third, the race to resilience is on. Nigel Topping, one of two high-level climate champions pushing to increase support for groups such as coastal communities to build resilience and adapt to climate risks, is candid that this agenda is lagging behind work on mitigation. But he cited examples he found encouraging. From California, using income from cap-and-trade carbon markets to accelerate the green transition and tackle fuel poverty, to parametric insurance in the Caribbean, which automatically kicks in after extreme weather events and avoids a long delay between loss and damage and payout. So just a bit of jargon there. So resilience is what would, you know, is also called adaptation. Um, this is actually helping countries to adjust to climate change. Mitigation is getting people to stop emitting the carbon dioxide and, and methane and other greenhouse gases in the first place. Finally, it seems collaboration is the new black. Burberry's Nicole Lovett, 
uh, underlined the importance of working with peers to address environmental impacts across value chains and to support shared suppliers to access renewable energy, increase water efficiency or gain certification. We need to standardise what we're trying to do collectively in a phased and progressive way. The UN Fashion Charter and the G7 Fashion Pact, I've never heard of either of those, but I'm not a very fashionable person, are ways we can work on some of that, both in terms of what we can get to better and where we need to direct our efforts to make the biggest impact. I don't know if these glimmers are enough to stop the night terrors of a world on fire, but I'm definitely energised by the passion and determination of everyone striving to keep our future within 1.5 degrees in a way that respects and protects people's rights. So thanks very much, uh, Mel Melanie, for that. Uh, I'm off to investigate the UN Fashion Charter and the G7 Fashion Pact and to change my wardrobe accordingly. Have a great weekend, everybody. Talk to you next week.